Let's turn together to Mark chapter 2 this morning. You've been with us while we're walking through the gospel of Mark. You say, wow, we're already in chapter 2? Seems impossible. We have flown to this point. Uh, Five sermons up to this point. I I do want to mention at chapter 2, there's kind of a transition in the gospel of Mark. And that is, uh, up to this point, there has really been no opposition to the ministry of Jesus. Uh, The demons of hell hate him. The demons of hell want to destroy him. But no human opposition. And uh, when you come to chapter 2, it presents a really uh, important transition. And in fact, the rest of the gospel itself will contain this kind of opposition, and it grows in intensity. It grows in intensity because of what Jesus says about himself. Uh, And so here, as we come to chapter 2, Jesus says, I have authority and power to forgive sins. And so we'll pick up chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. And here is God's word. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening... They let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like this or like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. This is God's word. Let's pray for the ministry of his spirit and his help. God in heaven, we ask that you would be faithful to the promises that you have made, that you would send forth your word and that your word would not return void. And so we ask that you would give to your people this morning the ears to hear what you would say to us. And I pray, Father, that you would, through the ministry of your Spirit, grant that a sinful crooked stick like me would be used to point the narrow way to Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. So Jesus heals a leper in Mark chapter 1. The leper, as you remember, goes and talks about it. And because he talks about it, it becomes nearly impossible for Jesus to move from town to town, the very thing that he wanted to do in order to preach the gospel. We don't know how Jesus came back to Capernaum. I suspect he had to sneak back in in the evening. But the Bible says that when he returned after some days, he went home. And then you say, where's home for Jesus? We don't even know that. Did Jesus live in the house of Peter and Andrew? Maybe. Did he have his own house? That's possible too. But that's not nearly as relevant as the point that verse 2 makes. 
And that is that many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. Now, Peter, as I mentioned at the start of our study of Mark, is Mark's primary source. And so one of the facts that Peter constantly brings up and that he mentions through the pen of Mark is that, is that Jesus in his ministry is busy. So busy that he's almost overrun at times with people. The, the crowds constantly want something from Jesus. And later we read that, that in some moments he's so busy that he doesn't even have time to stop and eat because of the crowds. I mention all that busyness because at, at this moment, Jesus has to begin to make a priority over certain aspects of his ministry so that they are not lost. And, and truthfully, the fact is, if Jesus would have wanted to, he could have healed every person in the entire Middle East. And so he could have gone down, in a sense, as the greatest healer that the nation of Israel had ever seen, that anyone had ever seen. And yet the frightening part of that is had he done that very thing, had he eradicated every disease on the face of the earth, his name, which could have been remembered, would not have done anything to give you eternal life. In fact, his, his existence would have had nothing beyond the days on the earth. More terrifying, I think, is that you and I would have been left to die in our sins. We would have been eternally separated from God. We'd have been forever under God's wrath. And so, look, even today, Jesus can still draw a crowd. I don't know which direction you came on your way to church, but there are traffic jams in various places to get to hear about Jesus. Why do they gather? Why do they still go to him? And why do you and I come to hear of him today? Mark says more than anything else, you need forgiveness of your sins. And so we're going to look at our text under three points this morning. The most necessary, the more difficult, and then thirdly, the true value. We start with the most necessary. It's an interesting phrase in verse 2. Inside the crowded house where there's absolutely no room, the door is backed up, and Jesus was preaching the word to them. If you've been with us since the beginning, you think back on chapter 1, verse 38. After Jesus spent hours in the morning in prayer out in a desolate place, Peter and the others came to him with urgency. They said, there's, a, there, there's people waiting to see you. Everybody's looking for you. Aren't you going to seize the moment? And Peter said, I mean, and Jesus says, no, let's go on to the next town that I may preach the word there also, for that's why I came out. And so here he has slipped back into Capernaum. I, I don't imagine that he was there very long. People start crowding at the door. They want to find him. What's he here to do? And he preaches. He preaches that same gospel message that we heard back in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. Right here, in fact, in front of you, would he say, repent, believe the gospel, that the God of mercy is ready to forgive, that I, Jesus, am really the only currency through which salvation can be given. And that's what he's preaching. And the gospel writers tell us that, that for a while, people in Capernaum are interested and they're, they're intrigued. But we know from the rest of the story that most of them are actually not moved to salvation. 
Matthew tells us in chapter 11, verse 23, that Jesus begins to denounce the cities in which he has done most of his wonders. And he denounces Bethsaida, he, he denounces others, and then he comes to denounce Capernaum. Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. And I mention that because I can't help but wonder if in the moment of his preaching, Jesus doesn't look at the crowds and say to himself, they don't even get it. It's as if they do not hear at all. And you can be sure that these four friends and this one man lame provide a perfect illustration for the sermon that Jesus is preaching. It's an awkward entrance, of course. A roof in this part of the world is flat. It is built with some sort of rafters and then uh, brush packed together with mud. Maybe there's rudimentary tiles inside the house. It is hot. The room is full and sweat is beating up on every brow. Suddenly, as Jesus preaches, you start hearing footsteps overhead and everybody would have looked up Everybody was having to shield their eyes as dirt fell down into their faces. And then as they're looking up, light breaks through from the ceiling. And, and you would have had to shade your eyes from the light that's breaking through. And then there's a, a, a whole body coming down into your midst. And the people who are sitting there on the floor are having to push themselves back to fit this man on the floor. You imagine that scene and then lying in front of Jesus with the friends peering through this gaping hole in the ceiling. Jesus has a, a captive audience. He's healed people before. Everybody knows that he is able, that he is willing. And look at verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. And the word son which is very tender, followed by your sins are forgiven, would have sounded very odd to everyone in the house, not just to the religious leaders, but the average layperson. Let's imagine and cast it in the best light. In the best light, it would have been read as irrelevant. In the worst light, of course, it would have seemed cruel maybe even insensitive. Is Jesus unaware? Does he not know the social cues? Doesn't he know why the person has been laid in front of him? No, he, he knows. He is not cruel about physical paralysis. But at this moment, this man must be given the thing that is the most necessary first or you might say he must be given what is needed before he is provided what is expected. And clearly, Jesus teaches that no amount of physical health, no amount of material prosperity, no amount of ease, no amount of comfort is more important than a right relationship with his Father in heaven. Jesus prioritizes forgiveness, you might say, over everything else. 
And then I wonder if you agree with his agenda. Do you agree that there is nothing more important than forgiveness of your sins? And then, of course, a scan of your own heart and your own mind. Would it reveal that same deeply held conviction? Or does the anxiety and the worry of your heart, do the matters that cause you frustration with others around you and with the Lord, does the pain that you feel in your heart or your body, do your frustrations with your spouse or your family or your friends say that you have the exact same priorities that Jesus has? I became convicted as I looked at this myself. And I wondered if you know where I would find evidence of that. It was by examining my own prayers and the kinds of things that I cry out to the Lord about. And in those prayers and in my journal, I notice what takes up the most space. Not only on the pages, but in my mind throughout the day. Why I can't fall asleep at night or why I wake up early in the morning and I'm bothered. And I can't help but wonder if my agenda is different from the Lord's. What would it look like in your own life if you and I were to say, well, okay, I want the priorities that Jesus has for me. And so I wrote a little prayer even to myself. God, I thank you that in Christ Jesus you have forgiven all of my sins. I could never have known you. I could never have earned a relationship with you. You brought me to yourself in love and grace. And you really are worthy of praise. Consider that in your own life. Ask this question now. What compelled Jesus to forgive sins? If you read ahead in verse 8, you notice that the same Jesus who can read the thoughts of the religious leaders is also able to read the thoughts of the man laying in front of him and the four who are overhead. And looking into his heart, Jesus sees in the man faith. If you're a good student of the Bible, if you're a careful reader, you say, well, faith can't save you. Doesn't there have to be some repentance to go along with it? Because everywhere in the Bible, faith follows a a heart of repentance over sins and trusting in Jesus. If you think that and you wonder that, you're actually right. But the fact is, verse 8 says that Jesus can see the things of people's hearts that you and I cannot see at all. And he knows motives that you and I do not know. In fact, you and I will get ourselves in trouble when we try to think that we can read the thoughts or motives of other people. You can't, but Jesus can. And you and I would have have rules about what repentance should look like. But Jesus has the eyes to see deeply into the soul of this man. And one respected pastor said it this way. Jesus perceives in this man's heart whatever partial, fragmentary, imperfect, inarticulate longing for grace and mercy. And Jesus responded to that even as inarticulate as it was. So willing is he to forgive and give grace. And then he said, 
Jesus is really aggressive with his grace. I wonder if you can see how comforting that is. Because in any crowd, there, there's, a, there's always a group of people who believe at some level that they have it together. And they would peer down upon those who don't have it together. In any crowd, there's those who feel as if they hope they don't get exposed. I don't have it together. But here's a comfort for both of you. And that is that Jesus is aggressive even to pursue the hearts of those who belong to him. So that he would be quick to give forgiveness and grace. It is not because you have an exhaustive listing of your sins and you mark those off and you say, okay, good, then I'm forgiven. In fact, the Bible teaches here that it's not nearly as important to be able to name every single sins with a perfect category and listing as it is to have a heart that cries out to the Lord for mercy. You can't even get the words out. And Jesus is ready to give you what you need as most necessary. I'm not saying at all that forgiveness is granted without repentance, as if that would be cheap grace. I'm saying that forgiveness isn't granted based on your ability to empty the list in your head. And I can't help but wonder if some of you, like me, have twisted repentance into something that the Bible says that it never was. You could have been taught this way, or you could have wrongly thought this way. But there is sometimes a misunderstanding as if, if, I'm, if I can name, if I can put into words the exact precise sins, then that one will get forgiven. And then I have to do the same with this one and this one and this one. And some of you might have even thought, well, I haven't remembered all of the sins that I've got. And so I've created some sort of spiritual roadblock towards God's blessings in my life. And the Bible says nothing of the sort. God have mercy on any one of us who would think that way. Because you could never name them all. And Jesus is so much more compassionate than that. So much more aggressive in his forgiveness. So much more willing to forgive. More than anything else, you need forgiveness of sins. That's what Jesus sees as most necessary. Now let's look at the more difficult. Look, the scribes are deeply troubled. And and rightly so. Verse 7, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And you and I should say, yep, that's true. Who can forgive sins but God alone? In the Bible, God is the only one who has the power and the authority to forgive sins. There are times, if you think back on the scriptures, that that you can remember a prophet in the Old Testament... Nathan comes to King David this way in 2 Samuel chapter 12, and he says, the Lord has forgiven you. And in the Old Testament, what those prophets are doing is they're speaking as a mouthpiece for God. They never would have presumed that they were the ones offering forgiveness on their own declaration. But Jesus in this passage seems to take not only the power and the authority to forgive sins into his own hands, But he speaks with such confidence that it is off-putting. They say, that's blasphemy. In other words, that's stealing the majesty, 
the authority that belongs to God alone. In fact, if you catch it here in Mark 2, this is the seed that carries Jesus all the way to the cross. That people will look at him and say, he's saying that he's God. Yes. But they do not consider that that's the real possibility. That he, in fact, is the Lord. And they've not thought of that. And so he poses to them a counter question, which would have been perfectly fitting in the context. Look at verse 9. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? You see, in the mind of the scribes, the answer is obvious. Well, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Because nobody can prove that. But to say, rise and walk, well, that would be immediately obvious. And so to them, that's the much harder thing. But of course, the underlying implication in their thinking and their reasoning is that Jesus can't do the the second one. He can't tell the man to get up and walk. And so all he's doing is acting as a fraud, making this grand declaration, hey, your sins are forgiven. So not only does this counter question challenge their assumption that Jesus is irresponsible, that he's tossing out some sort of cheap grace, but he also uses that counter question to set the stage for a physical healing that really does display his power not only over the physical realm, but also to forgive sins. Look at verse 10. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he arose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. Notice first that Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. The first time in Mark's gospel that we see that. It's actually a reference back to Daniel chapter 7. Jesus is going to use that phrase as a veiled way to speak not only of his humanity, but also of his divinity. That he is fully man and he is fully God. And as such, he possesses the authority over the physical world and the spiritual one as well. And so in Mark's gospel, this is going to become Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself. But notice... That the man who was paralyzed for however many years pressed himself, stood up on his feet, grabbed that old nasty cot, and he walked out. And that was what amazed them all. Truth is, if you and I were there, that is what would have amazed us as well. We would have been so impressed by that, that we would have missed the larger point. Would you think about this for a moment? On the tail end of of preaching the good news of salvation to a people who it would seem didn't fully understand or maybe even care about the message in that moment, they did not realize that what was actually easiest to say was in fact the more difficult to accomplish. But you and I, sitting from this distance, with an understanding to the rest of the story, have a clarity that they did not have. 
Because the truth is, for, for Jesus to heal this man physically cost him nothing but time. But forgiveness of this man's sins and your sins would cost him his life. Forgiveness is always costly on someone. And you know this in real life. You know it in petty things. And you know it in serious matters as well. A friend borrows your dress. Not that I have a dress. Borrows your dress. Wears it to an event. And somebody spills coffee. Or tea or red wine on it. And that dress is ruined. And your friend can say a million times, I am sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But the truth is, sorry doesn't get rid of the stain. It also doesn't buy you a new dress. And sorry can't recover what you lost. And so one way that the borrower can, that you could forgive the sin is for the borrower to go and buy you a new dress. Because she is in your debt. The other way for forgiveness to take place, to forgive the loss is for you to absorb the cost yourself. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. I I, I forgive you. I'll buy a new dress myself. But you recognize in that illustration that forgiveness, by definition, always costs someone something. The borrower can be forgiven for ruining your dress by going to spend the $200 to buy you a new dress, and you can forgive on the other side by bearing the cost yourself. But forgiveness costs someone something in petty things and also in more serious matters as well. Cruelty, abandonment, adultery, abuse, Betrayal, spiritually speaking, Jesus knows that the most necessary, that is the forgiveness of sins, is also the more difficult. Because the Bible says, of course, that your sins, whether they were known to you or not, whether they were high-handed or accidental, all of them put you under an insurmountable debt with God. And you were the one who was unfaithful in all your ways. And you responded to his offer of love with cruelty and with betrayal. You knowingly abused and trampled upon his goodness and his kindness. And yet, more than anything else, you need your sins forgiven. Jesus could have said to the scribes in that moment, You have no idea what is more difficult, but I really do. And I am willing to do all that it takes to forgive the sins of all of my people. And that's the good news of the gospel. Jesus already did the more difficult thing that you and I could never do. He already died to pay the debt of your sin and mine. And he bore the cost of forgiveness himself. And so you, when you begin to see the gospel from this perspective, you see why Jesus is actually right. It is far more necessary to have your sins forgiven than it is to have any of the other uh, things that you would ask of the Lord. Because when your sins are forgiven, then your heart is changed. And why does that matter? 
Because more often than not, you cannot control what happens to you. You can only control how you respond. Some of you have had devastating heartbreaks and very painful loss. And some of you might hear this message and say, this is, this is actually very hard to hear. You have no idea how I've been mistreated. You have no idea how I've suffered. I've been lied to and cheated. You should recognize that Jesus would say in the same breath, that is awful. My heart is broken for you and with you. And yet in that same breath, without your sins forgiven, you're going to be enslaved to bitterness and anger and revenge and a hatred that would poison your soul. And so when your legs are fixed, you can still run to sin. If your legs are fixed, you will still deal with this deep, nagging sense that you are unworthy, that though you don't even know what ways you're guilty, you feel the weight of that serious guilt that you don't measure up, and you're going to constantly drink this poison of bitterness for those that you hate, and you're hoping that while you drink that poison of bitterness, it will kill them somehow, and you're the one who's slowly dying. More than anything else, you need your sins forgiven. That is the most necessary, the more difficult. We're going to close with the true value. Take a look at verse 12. Once the paralytic got up, he walks out. Mark tells us, they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Why were they amazed? Why did they glorify God? Was it for the healing Or was it because Jesus has the power and the authority to forgive sins? Well, throughout the gospel and even still today, people pursue Jesus. They're pouring to see Jesus and hear of Jesus for many reasons. And like the paralyzed man who comes to him with a presenting problem, so many people come to the Lord with what they they believe is the biggest problem in their own life. In fact, some of you may be here today presenting yourself to Jesus with a problem that you hope that he can fix. It is the one that you think is the most important. And maybe it's not physical healing. Maybe it's the hope of finding fulfillment or finding a a spouse. Maybe you come to Jesus hoping that he can supply you with some, some friends in the church. Some activities for your kids. You come to Jesus saying, Lord, would you please heal my marriage? Or would you deal with the stress that I have at work? Would you give me some life purpose and and help me just to become a more responsible, good person? And you take a look at the culture around you. And the world tells you that many things are your biggest problem. And most of them have been done to you. The Bible says precisely the opposite. Which is, of course, why so many people pour into the church, really looking for Jesus to be a therapist more than to be a savior. Which is why he's still so popular. Which is why people still come. And yet, if you would find the true and deepest value in Christ, you have to come with humility. 
You have to come with genuine faith, believing that what he says you need is in fact your greatest need. Jesus can heal. He can fulfill. He can give you friends. He can deal with the trials that you face in this life. But first he says, come and lay down your personal agenda. That is your self-absorbed, self-diagnosed perception of what you want me to do for you. Faith in Christ really just means embracing his diagnosis. That there is a better healing. Because much more often, he doesn't fix your circumstances, he changes your heart. Which is the thing that makes an eternal significance. So given this perspective of eternity, what was the more valuable of the gifts that Jesus gave on that day? Dick Lucas, who is 98 years old, was a a pastor in London for a number of years, and he poses a a hypothetical that I think we'll borrow today for our own benefit. If this paralytic was given the ability to come down on this very day into our midst, in other words, he was called out of heaven and he rode down on South College Street on the wings of angels and he walked into the doors of the Alumni Center and as I saw him walk in, I step away from the podium and he steps up and begins to take my place. Can you imagine what he would say? I'll never forget that day when Jesus said to me, take up your bed and, and walk. And it never occurred to me that I would ever walk again. I want to tell you how grateful I am that he gave me my life back. And so I literally ran out of the room, pushing people in the crowd out of the way. And then like many of you, I was given the privilege of, of raising a family. And I lived another 40 years on this earth. But since then, I, I've been with Christ for, how do you count it, 2,000 years? We don't see it that way in eternity. But I've been with Christ ever since. And I would tell you with this eternal perspective that I now see what I could not possibly realize on that morning. That the first blessing he gave me of the forgiveness of sins was infinitely more valuable. In fact, and this might seem strange, in the seat in which you sit today, maybe it'll make you laugh. But if I could go back to that day and Jesus was to give me the opportunity even to make a decision to have one of the two, the healing of my body or the healing of my soul, I dare tell you I would take the healing of my soul every time. Because to go through life paralyzed is of course a desperately painful, horrible thing. But more horrible It would have been to go through this life not knowing that I was banished from God. Not to know that forgiveness is available. Not to know that Jesus is a savior and to grab hold of this offer that was being made to me. And so I would tell you that with that perspective, I now realize that God gave me two gifts on that day. And one was infinitely more precious than the other in fact the gift of forgiveness was the true value 
And so, friends, from the arms of our Lord, in the presence of God, this man who was once paralyzed would say to each of you more than anything else, you need your sins forgiven. Come to Jesus and be healed. Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you for the richness of your word. We pray that you would grant to us the very thing that you granted to this paralyzed man on that day. And that is true and real forgiveness of sins, but also a, a certain perspective that puts the weight of this short time on this earth up against eternity and recognizes the true value. Oh God, we pray that you would receive our worship and prepare us to receive the Lord's Supper. In the name of Jesus, amen.